Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations of body horror, harm against minors, psychosis, institutionalization, and domestic violence. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Some called her Nell or Emily, but she preferred people call her the River Witch. She did a good business in Marietta, offering white and black magic alike. She drew sickness off one client just to cast it on another. She sold curses to one man and amulets to his enemy. To Nell, there was no difference between dark and light, hexerai or brocherai. It was all magic, and it was all hers. But she had a rival, a strict do-gooder who lived half a day's ride beyond the Susquehanna River, Nelson Raymeyer. She didn't understand why Raymeyer needed to run a healing practice in his spare time. He was a successful farmer. His family was so large, the whole neighborhood was named after them. But he was driving prices down and undoing her spells. Something had to be done. She began with a curse or two. A sick horse, rotten crops, a fox getting into the hen house. But still, she heard nothing from Raymeyer's hollow. Stronger measures were needed. She put aside the turtle dove's tongues and the bullet she'd charmed to strike true no matter the target. She boiled a tea of asafetida and called the man's name up the chimney three times. Raymeyer, 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 she said willing the forces of darkness to bring her a means of destroying Nelson Raymeyer for good. And with a knock at the door, the spirits answered her call. The troubled man asked if he could come in. He was in desperate need of help, and most certainly, verhexed. He was bewitched, cursed. Nell smiled and opened the door prepared to tell him the exact source of his problem. Welcome to Haunted Places, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find episodes of Haunted Places and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Hex Hollow Murder House, the home of a Pennsylvania Dutch faith healer whose murder led to one of America's last witch trials. And discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Coming up, we'll meet the unfortunate Mr. Raymire. The Pennsylvania Dutch began immigrating to what would become the United States in 1683. Dutch immigrants were originally attracted to Pennsylvania by its promise of religious and cultural freedom. Many were members of Christian sects that had been marginalized in Europe. A devout Christianity blended with Orientalist mysticism, known as brokerai, or powwowing. 
The latter word was an appropriation of the Algonquian language to refer to the use of ritual traditions, but brokkeri borrows much more from medieval Catholic charms than any Native American practice. A brokker may write out prayers on scraps of paper to be kept on someone's person for protection, or lay hands on someone to alleviate pain or sickness. But not all of their magic is good. Hexerai is the dark arts to abrakarize light magic. A brokker may be enlisted to remove the effects of a curse cast by a hex, or a witch, using targeted prayers of protection or the creation of talismans. While many Pennsylvania Dutch still practice brokkerij today, hexerij is only spoken of in whispers. There are many reasons for this, not the least of them being the practice's inherent paganism. But the other reason is far more specific. In 1928, a popular brokker named Nelson Raymeyer was murdered by three men in York County, Pennsylvania, at his remote farmhouse. Their motives, as well as what happened next, would change Raymeyer's hollow forever. John Blymeyer didn't trust witchcraft. It was slippery stuff, dangerous and fickle. But Blymeyer was a Braucher himself, and he had a healthy respect for Nellie Knoll. The river witch of Marietta worked miracles. She just worked them for a price. And after suffering all 33 years of his life, Blymeyer was ready to pay it. And pay it he did. Five times five dollars each. Each consultation cost almost half of his rent payment for a month, but he would do the witch's dance. Anything to remove the curse on his head. His wife had left him. His children were gone. All he had left was his job at the cigar factory and his own troubled mind. But he was sure the job was soon to go too, and he feared his mind would follow. At his sixth session, Nellie took the five bills from his hand and asked for one more. He was about to ask why when she turned the dollar over and placed it in his palm. The old woman looked deep into his eyes. Hers were as pale as ice on a frozen pond. It frightened him. She carefully pulled the dollar from his grip and told him to look down. In his empty palm, he saw the face of the hex who had cursed him. Nelson Raymeyer. No. No, that couldn't be right. Raymeyer had been the Blymeyer family's Braucher for generations. The old man had removed a curse from Blymeyer himself shortly after he was born. Nellie looked at Blymeyer with pity. Had he ever considered, she asked, that the curse Raymeyer removed may have been of his own design? Blymeyer's world had turned on its head. He begged Nellie to tell him what to do. It was very simple, she said. He needed to obtain Raymeyer's spell book, along with a lock of his hair. If he buried the hair and burned the book, he would bind Raymeyer, so he could harm him no more. Surely, if they were friends, Blymeyer could charm these items from him. Blymeyer nodded. He had no idea how to outwit a witch, but he had no other choice. His first step was to enlist the help of another John, John Curry. They had met at the cigar factory. Curry was only 14, but Blymeyer was a sort of father figure to the teenager, not to mention his brocher. 
He offered prayers of protection for Curry when his stepfather got rough, and Curry was ever so grateful. And the boy believed him when he said that Nelson Raymeyer was most certainly responsible for both of their misfortunes. After all, he was a boy of good sense. Next, Blymeyer received word that the neighboring Hess family was also going through great troubles. It didn't take him long to realize that Raymeyer had cursed the Hess family as well. Only a hex as powerful as Raymeyer could wreak so much havoc on so many people at once. The Hess family had sick relatives, sick animals, crops rotting. It was atrocious. The evil had to be ended. Mrs. Hess agreed to send her son Clayton to drive Blymeyer and Curry as they scouted Raymeyer's place. Clayton's 18-year-old brother, Wilbert, came along. It was pitch dark when Clayton drove the three of them to Raymeyer's Hollow. When the farmhouse's dark wood facade and porch came into view, Clayton stopped the car just out of sight and let Blymeyer, Curry, and Wilbert out. The autumn leaves crunched beneath their feet as they approached the house. Blymeyer called out to the second-floor window. Raymeyer poked his head out, but his words were jumbled by a yawn. Blymeyer begged to be let in. He'd left something important behind during a previous visit, and he needed to find it, he said. Raymeyer answered with another yawn and a nod, and invited them inside. But after a swirl of wind lifted the leaves from the porch... Blymeyer saw Nellie Knoll sitting in the grass beside Raymeyer's porch. She hadn't been there before. Blymeyer was sure of it. Her pale eyes glittered in the darkness, and her shawl moved like a wisp in the wind. Blymeyer opened his mouth to ask if she was there to help, but Raymeyer opened the door before the words left his lips. Nellie's form melted away as candlelight spilled from the house. If Blymeyer had been a different man, he would have believed he was seeing things, that Nellie wasn't real. But he knew the power of a hex. So instead, he told himself it was a good omen, a sign of the River Witch's protection. He stepped inside behind the two young men and looked around the room for Raymeyer's spellbook, but he didn't see any sign of it. Raymeyer smiled at the young men. Could he get them anything? Tea? Something to eat? Wilbert opened his mouth, but Blymeyer silenced him with a look. This was his mission. He was going to do the talking. He asked Raymeyer if they could kindly have some tea. Raymeyer obliged, whistling his way into the kitchen to put some water on to boil. As soon as the old man left the room, Blymeyer pulled the other two men in. He told them they would surround the witch together and subdue him. They would tie him up and get that hair. Then the curse would end. They would all be free. Blymeyer approached the kitchen. Then he froze. Nellie was sitting on top of the oven, watching him. Her shawl was black now, fading into the stove as if it itself was made of metal. Only her papery skin stood out, near transparent in the lantern light, her expression unreadable. Blymeyer told himself again that she was there for protection. She knew how important this was. He shifted his focus to the hex in front of him and jumped on Raymeyer's back. Wilbert and Curry closed in from each side, desperately trying to bring the tall man to the floor. 
but Raymeyer managed to throw Blymeyer off. Blymeyer grabbed a chair from the corner and brought it down as hard as he could on the old man's back. Raymeyer screamed in pain, but it wasn't enough to make the witch go still. He bucked against Wilbert and Curry's grip. They needed something bigger. Blymeyer wrapped his arms around Raymeyer's torso and told Curry to find something heavy. He felt Curry pull away for a moment, then return. Suddenly, a large metal box slammed into Raymeyer's head with an ear-splitting crack. Raymeyer's body stilled. Then, the three men dragged him back toward the living area. Wilbert and Curry tied him up while Blymeyer dug around for the spellbook. Suddenly, Curry stammered that Raymeyer was dead. Blymeyer turned the witch over. His head was a mess of viscous gray and red. A long breath passed between them. Blymeyer's mind swirled with panic. It was never his intention to kill Raymeyer, hex or not. But as he stared down at the old man's crumpled body, he changed his mind. Blymeyer clapped his hands together. The curse of ill fortune was done, he told them. Easy as that. Blymeyer gave the house a quick search, pocketing money he found to split between the three of them later. He thought for a moment that he heard Nellie laugh from the hall. She was gone when he turned around, but in her place, a bottle of lantern oil glinted at him. Blymeyer smiled. Raymeyer would burn. He sent the two boys outside and struck a match, dropping it on the carpet below. He strolled outside as the small flames leapt up behind him. Curry asked why Blymeyer was so calm. Blymeyer reminded them that they had killed a witch, not a good citizen. They were righteous men. They didn't look back as they headed down the road to meet Clayton. They didn't see the fire extinguish itself and they didn't see Nellie's knowing smile as she stood atop the roof. Nellie had gotten what she wanted, but the tools of her machinations were another story. Their problems had only just begun. On November 27, 1928, 33-year-old John Blymeyer, 14-year-old John Curry, and 18-year-old Wilbert Hess broke into 60-year-old Nelson Raymeyer's house on the advice of a woman named Nellie Knoll. Nellie, who was also known as the River Witch of Marietta, had convinced them that they had been hexed by Raymeyer. Blymeyer suffered from both mental illness and family tragedy. He'd actually been institutionalized until he decided to simply walk off the grounds of the Harrisburg State Hospital and never return. When Nellie Knoll told him that Raymeyer's curse must be the cause of his ill fortune, he was eager to listen, not considering any potential motive for her to take out her rival practitioner. Blymeyer, Curry, and Hess broke into Raymeyer's home the next night, but in their struggle to subdue him and steal his spell book and a lock of his hair, they killed the older man. With Raymeyer dead, Blymeyer reasoned the curse was broken. They stole his valuables and covered the corpse in oil and set the house on fire. 
but magic is based on equal exchange. The world was out of balance, and Blymeyer, Curry, and Hess were about to pay the price. Up next, the so-called York Witch Trial begins. Listeners, here's a show you do not want to miss. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, and some don't. In our love story, the new Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, our love story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse into a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Ready to hear more? Follow our love story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. On November 28, 1928, 33-year-old John Blymeyer, 14-year-old John Curry, and 18-year-old Wilbert Hess bludgeoned 60-year-old Nelson Raymeyer to death. Blymeyer had been convinced that Nelson Raymeyer was a hex, a witch who had cursed him, Curry, and the Hess family with ill fortune. The three men covered Raymeyer's corpse in oil, set it alight, and left the house. But they didn't stay long enough to see the fire suddenly go out. A neighbor heard Raymeyer's animals calling out in distress the next morning. His body was found shortly after. But the fire had been mysteriously snuffed out. When Nelson Raymeyer's wife Alice was told of her husband's death, she knew exactly who had done it. Two days before the attack, John Blymeyer and John Curry had inquired as to Raymeyer's whereabouts, and Alice sent them over the hill to his small farmhouse. The strange murder of Nelson Raymeyer thrust both the Pennsylvania Dutch and their folk magic into the national spotlight. The New York Times reported that the killers Blymeyer, Curry, and Wilbert Hess were quickly picked up by the police and questioned by District Attorney Amos W. Herman. But Amos learned that the story leading up to their arrest was anything but simple. The case seemed too easy, and District Attorney Amos Herman didn't trust easy. The death of Nelson Raymeyer didn't fit into the York County community at all. They didn't get many murders. There were hunting accidents and a drunken quarrel or two, but prohibition violations and bank fraud were far more common. It hadn't taken magic to point them in the direction of Blymeyer and Curry. Curry was a complicated boy, not frequently in trouble with the law, but his stepfather was. If anything, he was looking for male authority in all the wrong places. Blymeyer, however, was a peculiar case. He was, as Amos's mother would have said, odd. His eyes were wild, and he smiled an awful lot for an innocent man. Amos was willing to believe that Blymeyer wasn't innocent. A year earlier, he'd been brought into Amos's office under suspicion of a different murder. 
16-year-old Gertrude Rudy's corpse was found on the train tracks, her face mostly blown away by a shotgun, shot at close range. Someone had tried to make it look like an accident. Fortunately, they weren't smart enough to succeed. Blymeyer had been seen with Rudy repeatedly. Witnesses said she was smitten, and the autopsy showed she was pregnant. But everything was circumstantial. Yet another of the rare murders in York County, and now John Blymeyer was potentially attached to both. It couldn't be a coincidence. A month later, Blymeyer walked toward the witness stand, far more subdued than he'd been when Amos originally questioned him. Amos's first question was to ask him about the source of his calm. Blymeyer smiled. He replied that he had ended a curse. Amos poked gently. What did he mean by that? Blymeyer's voice got low, raspy. The curse had begun, he said, the night his daughter had died. That evening, he laid her down to sleep and kissed her forehead goodnight. But the next morning, there'd been silence. No ear-splitting cry to wake him. No gurgle or laugh. Babies just died sometimes, the doctor said. No one knew why. Blymeyer had his suspicions, but it was too terrible to think of. The next night, he heard a skittering in the walls. At first, he thought it was an animal, but the scratching had a distinctly human rhythm. Tap, tap, tap. Tap, tap, tap. When he asked his wife if she heard it, she only cried and turned over in her sleep. Soon, the taps became knocking, and then, voices. He swore he heard people moving through the walls, but the walls weren't thick enough to hide anyone. They were no wider than the palm of your hand. Soon, he heard footsteps. Then, ghostly sighs that kept him awake. As soon as his eyes started to feel heavy, he felt the weight of someone's hand against his face. But there was no one else in the room besides him and his sleeping wife. He needed confirmation that he wasn't alone. As if to answer him, the voices started to grow louder. Every time he tried to rouse his wife, she mumbled to him that he should just go back to sleep. Blymeyer's father had been more helpful. He hired a Braucher with experience in exorcism, but the charms only agitated the voices. They got louder and louder, and one night filled his room with a din of a thunderstorm. She shook his wife awake, but when she turned, she had the face of a monster. Her features were distorted, red and angular. He suddenly realized that her head was too large for her body. It had grown short and emaciated. Small wings beat beneath the sheets behind her. Blymeyer fell out of bed, stumbling to get away. He begged the creature not to hurt him, for the hex to come to an end. But the creature only lifted up on its tiny wings, disentangling itself from the bedsheets, and flew toward him. He tried to move, but he was backed up against the wall. Terror wrapped around his throat, making it impossible to speak. Tears dripped from his eyes. Blymeyer summoned every bit of courage he had and screamed. 
letting out every incantation he knew. But the goblin only moved closer and closer. The next thing he remembered, he woke up on the floor, red scratches all down his arms and chest, with his terrified wife standing over him. Blymeyer was crying on the stand now. Amos handed him a handkerchief. He wasn't sure he believed Blymeyer's explanation about goblins and chants. Still, he didn't want the man getting sweat and snot all over the witness stand. Blymeyer thanked him for his generosity. Amos let Blymeyer sit in this moment of small kindness. Then he sprung his trap. Amos asked if Blymeyer felt Gertrude Rudy had seen goblins too. Blymeyer blinked. His eyes darted from Amos to the jury box beside him. He claimed he didn't know who Gertrude Rudy was. Amos held up his hands in a gesture of surrender. He admitted that it wasn't exactly fair to ask Blymeyer to answer for a murder he didn't officially commit. A chorus of gasps rose from the pews in the courthouse. It was Amos's turn to smile. He'd just planted a seed of doubt. Now, all he had to do was watch it grow. Days after Blymeyer's testimony, justice was served. Blymeyer, Curry, and Hess were all found guilty of murder. Hess was sentenced to 10 years, and Blymeyer and Curry were given life in prison though they would all eventually be released on parole. This comparative leniency of Hess's sentence may have been a result of local sentiment. While some looked on the accusation of witchcraft as a pitiable oddity, many of the Pennsylvania Dutch believed that Blymeyer and the Hess family were actually cursed. District Attorney Herman had tried his hardest to keep the word witchcraft out of the trials entirely. But as soon as Clayton Hess told the jury that Blymeyer had said he'd got the witch, a media circus was born. After the guilty verdict was read, Blymeyer told the press that they went a little heavy. But he felt a lot better, he said. The spell was off him. He wasn't bewitched anymore. Yet while Blymeyer might have felt relief about Raymeyer's death, absolution didn't come as easily for the rest. Wilbert Hess had never been fully convinced of Nelson Raymeyer's curse. He needed to see the house again to make sure that he hadn't killed an innocent man. Coming up, Wilbert Hess revisits the scene of his crime. Now back to the story. Though all three were found guilty, none of the three Hex trial defendants served their full terms. Despite his life sentence, John Blymeyer was released on parole after 23 and a half years and died in 1972. John Curry was paroled after 10 years and became a well-known local artist and cartographer. He was part of the team that planned the invasion of Normandy in World War II and was well-loved in York County. Wilbert Hess served his full 10-year sentence and went on to live a quiet life in York. Nobody held his crimes against him. The town appeared to move on. But to Wilbert Hess, Nelson Raymeyer's now-abandoned farmhouse was a bleak reminder of what he'd done. 
Wilbur Tess was 28 years old when he breathed open air again. There were no more cramped cells or dim institutional lighting. He was no longer afraid of the people around him. He was free. It was another chance. More than anything, it was a chance to be away from John Blymire. Ten years before, Wilbur thought he'd help break his family's curse. Blymire was so sure that Nelson Raymeyer was evil, he needed to be stopped. So, Wilbur did exactly as asked. But things quickly spun out of control. What Wilbur learned about Blymire after the trial was enough for him to rethink everything. On a particularly dreary night at the Eastern State Penitentiary, when they'd run out of things to talk about, Blymeyer started mentioning a woman named Gertrude. Blymeyer told Wilbert that before Raymeyer had ever been a thought in Blymeyer's mind, there was Gertrude. She was pretty, but she wouldn't give him what he wanted. So he killed her, then placed her body in the train tracks to try to make it look like an accident. The plan didn't work. A signalman caught sight of Gertrude's corpse before the train could run through her. But luckily for Blymeyer, the case was never solved. Wilbert was stunned. Blymeyer swore on the stand that he had nothing to do with Gertrude Rudy's death. But in prison, his story changed. Wilbert didn't like how flexible Blymeyer was on his morality. Killing a witch was defensible. Killing a woman because they didn't like you wasn't. If Blymeyer could be so cavalier about the whole matter, then maybe everything Wilbert knew about Nelson Raymeyer had been a lie, too. They'd never given Nelson a chance to tell his side. If Blymeyer was lying, maybe he wasn't the hero vanquishing the monster. Maybe he was the monster. So, on his first day of freedom, he decided to pay a visit to Nelson Raymeyer's Hollow. He needed to walk the ground again, dredge up his memories. There had to be something in there that proved that Nelson was evil. If he had that, then he could sleep well again. The house was falling apart, abandoned, the shutters dangling from the windows. But then, he saw something he hadn't expected. There was a light inside. A figure appeared in the window, twisting and turning. It could almost be mistaken for dancing, but light was creeping along the body. The entire interior of the house was being eaten by flames. Wilbur took off running toward the house. He'd sent one man to his death. He couldn't stand by while another one met his end in the same hell. He flung the door open and felt the heat against his face. He could smell fire in the air and hear the crackle of flames, but he couldn't see anything. It was empty. Suddenly, Wilbert slipped, nearly falling through a hole in the floorboards in front of him, but he grabbed hold of a partially burned joist. He realized he was in the exact spot where they'd laid Nelson's body down, where the fire had started. Wilbert clung on for dear life, not wanting to fall through to the basement below, then, a high-pitched, almost human sound screamed in his ear. He couldn't make out the words, but the desperation of the sound made him think it was a cry for help. 
He scooted along the joist until he was able to pull himself up. He began searching for any sign of this person, or the fire that he'd heard burning just moments before. But there was nothing. A voice bellowed at him to get out of the house. It sounded almost like Blymire. Without thinking, Wilbert ran toward the door, stumbling once again into the hole in the floorboards. But this time, he didn't grab the joist. His back took the brunt of his fall, landing hard in the stone basement. As he lay there, his brain caught up with his body. John Blymeyer was still in prison, he told himself. It couldn't have been his voice he'd heard moments before, which meant that Blymeyer must have been right about one thing. There was a curse here. The only problem with Blymeyer's conviction was that it had been misplaced. It wasn't Nelson Raymeyer who had caused the curse. It was the house. Nelson was innocent. Wilbert tried to get back up, but his back burned. He wasn't strong enough to make it out of here on his own, but nobody knew where he was. He hadn't been brave enough to tell his mother he was getting out of prison that morning. He wanted to walk through the Raymeyer's hollow on his own. If his family had come along, they would have found confirmation of evil at every turn. No, Wilbert had to see the place alone. But now, no one would come looking for him. He felt utterly helpless. Suddenly, Wilbert saw the faintest glow of orange near the corner. It was just a spark at first, but then the small spark grew bigger. Smoke poured into the basement from the hole in the upper floor. Everything was swallowed by giant black clouds. Wilbert struggled to see. The flames sucked the breath out of his body. He writhed on the floor, fighting through the pain to find a hold so he could pull himself to his feet. But his energy was going. He'd walked to the farmhouse. His muscles were tired, his spirit broken. Maybe he deserved this. Maybe he was going to burn in this world before he burned in the next one. Perhaps the only curse here was his own. His and John's and Curry's, each sin in equal measure. He stopped struggling, his outstretched hands falling toward the floor. But then he felt them connect with someone else's. The hands pulled him to his feet and guided him up the stairs. Wilbert's vision was starting to fade. His back was still mired in pain. He couldn't see well enough to do anything but hold on to the hand and follow. Every time he tried to speak, he lost his words to a violent, burning cough. He made it to the door and rested his head against the frame. A voice told him to keep going. He did as he was told, picking his tired torso up off the wood and throwing himself outside. His body collapsed in the grass of the lush green hollow, barely three feet away from the front porch. He breathed the free air again and slowly managed to turn over to look at the house. Nelson Raymeyer was standing in the window. The old man didn't look angry or vengeful, just sad. Wilbert felt something fall into his hand. A small roll of paper sat in his palm. It seemed to glow softly in the moonlight. He opened it slowly. There, in shaky red handwriting, was a protection charm. 
It was Nelson's handwriting. He knew it from the annotations in his book before they buried it behind his family's barn. It was a spell against evil. Forgiveness, even if he may not deserve it. An escape from a horror of his own making. A hope for the future. Wilbert looked to the empty window, then up at the sky. He whispered a thank you. Then he started to sob. Shortly after Nelson Raymire's murder, York locals gave Raymire's Hollow a new name, inspired by its now infamous former resident, Hex Hollow. It became a go-to location for teenagers looking for a scare, and the ghost stories grew. Disembodied voices are said to float around the property. A jet-black dog with red glowing eyes has been seen in the forest beside the house. If you throw rocks at the home, it will throw them back. Nelson Raymire's great-grandson, Rick Ebau, reports that some still address him as if his ancestor was a witch, siding with Blymire and describing the site of the murder as an evil, cursed place. Many, however, have forgotten Raymire's rival, Nellie Knoll, the River Witch of Marietta. Blymire's supporters cite Raymire's body's failure to burn as evidence of his witchcraft. Blymeyer, Curry, and Hess claim they saw a figure moving in the flames. Historian Ross McGinnis suggests that Raymeyer may have managed to stand as he bled out and tried to escape the burning house. But Raymeyer's last flailing attempts at life don't explain how the fire Blymeyer set was doused so quickly. Rick Ebau says that it was a twist of fate. As part of the floor burned away, Raymeyer's body partially fell through catching out a potato bin, and the blood from his corpse potentially stifled the flames. But there's one more factor to consider. The long-lost friend, the name of the supposed spellbook Raymire used to guide his healing practices, includes the following invocation. Whoever carries this book with him is safe from all his enemies, visible or invisible, and whoever has this book with him cannot die without the holy corpse of Jesus Christ, nor drown in any water, nor burn up in any fire, nor can any unjust sentence be passed upon him. You may not believe the story of the Hex Hollow, or in the shadow figure seen around the hollow, or in the spectral black hound that lurks in its woods, but something horrible did happen there, something evil. So, who do you believe? The respected healer? or the tragic man who felt his curse was lifted as soon as the healer was dead. What is a hex and what is fate? Who did God protect in the end? It's all a matter of faith. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. 
Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Gitovich. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache. With writing assistance by Alex Garland. I'm Greg Polson. Don't forget to check out Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.